you're traveling through another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. It is the middle ground between light and shadow, between science and superstition. And it lies between the pit of one's fears and the summit of one's knowledge. You are now traveling through a dimension of imagination. You just crossed over into the Twilight Zone. Hello and welcome to a bonus episode of Anthology, presented by ObsessiveViewer.com. I'm your host, Matt Hurt, and if this is your first time listening, Anthology is one man's examination of the Twilight Zone as a first-time viewer. Each podcast, I share my first impressions, analysis, and overall thoughts on Rod Serling's iconic series one episode at a time. However, in this bonus episode series, I'm reviewing Monkey Paw Productions' Twilight Zone reboot on CBS All Access, hosted by Jordan Peele. You can find more of Anthology, as well as full episode archives, separated by main episodes and bonus episode series, at anthologypod.com. And if you want to contact me, you can use the Facebook page at facebook.com slash anthologypod, tweet me at ovanthologypod, or send an email to matt at obsessiveviewer.com. Today on the show, I'll be discussing Blurry Man. It's the 10th and final episode of The Twilight Zone's first season, and it originally aired or premiered on May 30th, 2019 on CBS All Access. And I'm really excited about this because it's the last episode of season one of The Twilight Zone, and that's an exciting milestone, and I'm really excited to talk about this episode finally. I It's been hectic and everything, so I'm glad that I finally have the time uh, to sit down and actually record this. <laughs> um, before I get into my review and get into all the minutia about it and everything, I do have a couple notes beforehand. Uh, first, I'm going to be appearing on Brandon Cruz's phenomenal Submitted for Your Approval podcast to discuss the episode uh, Still Valley from Season 3. Um, of the original Twilight Zone. Uh, that's season three, episode 11. Uh, yeah. And I recorded it with Brandon. Uh, when was that? Like a week ago? Uh, no, like half a week ago. I don't know what my days are. Anyway, uh, it's my third appearance on Submitted for Your Approval. And every time it has been just an absolute blast. And I'm so honored to be asked to come back. Uh, so go ahead. And as of this recording, it hasn't posted yet, but it, he said that it's going to be up this week, I think. Um, so go ahead and subscribe to the show, Submitted for Your Approval. Uh, and follow him on Twitter at S4YA underscore podcast. Again, it's a, such a fun show. And he's obviously he's... Uh, about uh, just shy of halfway under uh, halfway through season three, so there's a lot of content, and uh, yeah, so check that out. Um, also, a couple of things are really a potential Easter egg uh, in A Traveler. So, the episode A Traveler, obviously, Stephen Young's character's name is A Traveler. Um, and I kind of wondered, and I posted this on Twitter also because someone in one of the Twilight Zone fan groups I'm in happened to share a screen grab from the season one original series episode, The Chaser, that kind of correlated with my thoughts. So anyway, um, I kind of wondered if the name A Traveler is a, a, a reference or homage to um, the original series season one episode, The Chaser, which, uh, like, I think the main character had a uh, business card that, and I think it was on the door. I don't, or I think it was on the door. I don't know. But anyway, uh, the devil character in that episode was referred to in print, at least on the business card or door or whichever was, uh, Professor A. Demon or Damon Demon, whatever. Um, 
and I kind of wonder if that like I'm kind of back and forth. I don't know if like Glenn Morgan, who wrote A Traveler, and the production of the new Twilight Zone, I I feel like that's a little bit too deep of a cut of a reference for them, especially since I mean this whole season they've been kind of re reusing the um the Gremlin uh figure and everything. So I I don't know. Maybe I'm giving them too much credit, but um. Just kind of interesting, uh, coincidence, I guess. Um, so, uh, and then, oh, and my other note before I get to some feedback and everything is that, uh, I have already recorded my season one wrap up episode with Tiny. So I did get Tiny on for it. So, uh, we'll be seeing that episode shortly after, uh, this episode is released. So look forward to that. It was a lot of fun. We, we ended up talking way too long. Um, but it's, uh, it's a fun, it's a fun chat. So yeah, I'm looking forward to, uh, releasing that. Um, finally, I have a bit of feedback that I'm super excited about. First of all, a uh, good friend of the show, Robert on Twitter said, congrats on your download milestone. We all appreciate your hard work and passion, which I really appreciate you guys saying that, uh, well, Robert saying that, but everyone else hopefully thinking that in some capacity uh just a, just a note i'm i'm recording this uh june 25th at 6 19 i have tickets to see godzilla king of the monsters in like in in two hours um and i'm hoping i can get this episode recorded before i have to leave for the theater um but also tomorrow is my birthday and i'm hoping that i can get this episode edited and released on my birthday because uh, i took the day off tomorrow just because it's my birthday and I have that right. Um, and I'm, I'm planning some kind of fun, hopefully some fun stuff for obsessive viewer, the obsessive viewer podcast. Um, I'm hoping to do like a solo episode where I, uh, review a couple of movies, uh, by myself. So check that out. If you haven't subscribed to the, uh, to obsessive viewer, check that out, uh, the same day that this episode is releasing. So anyway, uh, last be- piece of feedback and everything, and then I'll get into my review of Blurry Man. Uh, Monica, good friend of the show, and uh, she, uh, Monica, uh, posted on Facebook or commented on on Facebook on the Facebook page. She said, "Hey Matt, just wanted to let you know I appreciate all the hard work you've been doing lately. You've been pushing out so many episodes lately. I haven't had time to respond." But I did want to just say thanks for all the new episodes. You're awesome. And I wanted to comment on that because I did feel kind of like I know that I've been really pumping out these episodes with the bonus review series and the original series episodes. And I I've I have this weird thing where I at one point I considered doing like just the bonus episodes and then um and then resuming the original series, but I figured that after going through such a long hiatus with no new episodes, I figured might as well kind of play catch up with the original series as best I could anyway. So, and plus it, you know, it gives me an excuse to actually watch the series, uh, which is something that during that hiatus I couldn't do. So, uh, and I love the show. So there's that. So anyway, um, thank you, Monica, for the kind words. I really appreciate it. And, and anyone else who has shared thoughts or positive vibes about my output on the podcast, I really do appreciate it. Um, and then also Monica also commented on my blue scorpion review and she said, uh, Hey, I just listened to your blue scorpion review. Great job. I wanted to tell you that I absolutely loved your rant at the end about gun ownership. And I'm really glad you didn't edit it out. Like you said, you might. And I'm so glad that she said that because I really thought that maybe there was a chance I may have, I don't know. If, I don't know if I'd say cross the line. Cause that makes it sound like I'm like, I'm some provocative podcaster. I'm not, I'm just a dude that's like 
six hours away from turning 33 in, <laughs> in his one bedroom apartment with his cat. So, um, yeah, I, it's just, I really appreciate that feedback because I did worry about that because I don't want to alienate listeners, but it's also something that I'm passionate about. And it's something that I have obviously strong opinions about. And if that, loses listeners or if that if that is a deal breaker for any listeners out there then i i I don't know what to tell you i I don't want to apologize for that or anything and since it was um relevant to the episode i didn't feel too bad about it but i just felt like okay the after after complaining all season about the uh the the profanity and then me telling literally telling the listeners to go fuck themselves if they disagree with my thoughts on gun control like i thought that that crossed the line specifically but i do really do feel that way especially in context of the dark knight rises shooting because seriously it's like that's that example specifically is what got my ire up and i just remember that vividly even though it was many years ago anyway i talked more about that with tiny in the year in review ep- or not year in review episode but the season in review episode so look forward to that um but for now let me go ahead and go into my review of blurry man so plot summary according to cbs all access is sophie gelson a writer for the twilight zone is haunted by a mysterious figure and of course i'm going to be spoiling the episode entirely um, which that summary also spoils the episode entirely, <laughs> but I don't think there's really any way to summarize in a brief one sentence statement what this episode is without spoiling the surprise in the opening act. So hopefully you guys are coming into this having seen the episode because otherwise I don't know why you'd be listening to this review. Um, so anyway, uh, this episode stars, uh, Zazie, Zazie Beats. I, I'm not clear on her, how to pronounce her name. Zazie Beats. Uh, as Sophie Gilson. She was Domino in Deadpool 2. Total scene stealer. Like, she was... Fa- I need to watch Deadpool 2 again. She was fantastic in it. Uh, she's also in the uh, um, uh, Donald Glover show Atlanta. And she is going to be appearing in Joker later this year. Uh, co-starring as herself, as Betty Gabriel, is Betty Gabriel, who every time I see her name, I want to read it as uh, Betty Grable, um, which is a reference that's way, way before my time anyway. Anyway, she was in uh, Get Out as Georgina. She was all, She's had a hell of a couple of years recently. She was in Get Out unfriended dark web which i maintain as is a fairly underrated and uh surprisingly well done uh movie from last year uh she was also an upgrade which is a fantastic genre movie also uh she appeared in i think it was just i think i don't know if she was in season one but uh she's been in westworld and finally on stars she has been in on the show counterpart which is a show that i definitely want to check out at some point because the premise is intriguing um as adam wegman and seth rogan is seth rogan who has done a ton of comedy and stuff i'm not going to list his credits or anything um but he's seth rogan um also, uh, rounding out the cast as the narrator and as himself, Jordan Peele is Jordan Peele, who is, of course, the host of the show and, uh, producer and, uh, kind of the face of the new Twilight Zone series. Writer for this episode was Alex Rubens, who previously wrote The Comedian and is a producer on the show as well. And director is Simon Kinberg, who recently directed the much maligned Dark Phoenix, uh, 
X-Men movie. I watched, I saw Dark Phoenix a couple weeks ago and it's nothing. Like, people are kind of dragging it down saying like, oh, it's like the worst X-Men movie ever, which no, <laughs> no, it's not. Uh, X-Men Origins Wolverine and, uh, X-Men The Last Stand are the two worst X-Men movies. Um, in my opinion. But Dark Phoenix is, it isn't as aggressively bad as those entries, but it's just so lifeless and dull and not that interesting. There's one set piece um, at the beginning where the X-Men are in, uh, they're, they're flying into space to save uh, the space shuttle in distress. And it's like, it's a really cool inventive use of all the powers and how they kind of work together to, as a team. It's a really cool sequence, but I, other than that, I can't endorse even seeing this movie. Well, no, that's too strong. I can't endorse going out of your way to see this movie in the theater because it is lifeless as can be. So, uh, I'll save that for my X-Men, uh, podcast. I'm just kidding. So my initial thoughts on Blurry Man, again, spoilers for this entire episode. So my initial thoughts are that I was, in my first viewing, I was blown away by this episode when I first watched it. So the surprise in the opening sequence was just so unexpected and so fun that I literally had to pause the episode. I'm not joking. I had to pause the episode like three times before the opening credits, um, just to let my mind catch up with what I was, what I was seeing. Um, it was such a blast. Like just the moment that, that Peel breaks the fourth wall and then we get into the actual, what the actual episode is, was su- such an amazing surprise and just blew my mind. I was so happy with it. Um, but aside from that surprise, um, it does have a lot of merit too. Like the poignancy at the end and the statements that the episode made about the relationship between writer and subject, um, and, and kind of, I don't want to say writer and muse, but like the writer and its, and the burden of, of its subject, uh, was just a thing of beauty to me. Um, however, the farther I got away from it, the more unbalanced the episode kind of felt. So I'll get more into that as I go through my review. But the sentiment, the sen- the sentiment, uh, the sentiment is still there and still very strong. And I think that it was a fantastic way to end the season. Um, and I can't wait to dig into it. So before I actually dig into it, um, I don't remember if I mentioned this in the next bonus review or bonus episode with Tiny, but I do want to mention that this is the second time this season that CBS All Access has front-loaded an episode of uh, of The Twilight Zone with a trailer for, for their original series show, Strange Angel, which... It's mildly annoying to me since I pay for, since I pay CBS All Access for no ad breaks. But on the other hand, HBO does the same exact thing, so I can't really complain. And it's not, I mean, it's not that bad. But I do like that this particular trailer, um, was kind of tailor made for Twilight Zone fans because as part of, part of the trailer, it says explore another world that exists between light and shadow. I thought that was kind of cool and kind of, I don't know, kind of an interesting way to try to hook, uh, the Twilight Zone's audience. But <laughs> I will say that this is the second time this season that I've been forced to watch a, uh, a, a preview for Strange Angel. And I've watched these episodes multiple times, so I've seen that tra- that first trailer ex- uh, a, m- a multitude of times at this point. Um, I still couldn't tell you what the hell the show is about. <laughs> like it's going, it's in their, they're going to be in their second season. It could be a good show, I don't know. But I just, I like judging solely from those trailers, I don't know what the show is about. 
Um, so I don't know. Maybe I'll check it out eventually. I don't know. So anyway, to get into the actual episode of The Twilight Zone, this episode opens with Seth Rogen agonizing over his imposter syndrome and writer's block. He's clearly a writer who's struggling with, uh, with figuring out like his, his muse. Um, and I appreciate that because it feels real. Like even if it's an episode within an episode, imposter syndrome is a very real thing and self-doubt exists completely. And, um, it's, uh, for me, it's highly relatable. <laughs> like even with something as creatively uncreative as a podcast, um, I feel like I, I, like I feel that imposter syndrome a lot. Not so much nowadays because I'm, I'm kind of over it. I, once you do like a hundred or hundred or more episodes of a podcast, I feel like that kind of breaks you of the, um, imposter syndrome kind of thing. But <laughs> on that note, I would actually go so far as to say that I'm shocked that I even started this podcast, much less carry it through to nearly a hundred episodes total. I'm including the bonus episodes in that. So anyway, uh, my point is that it's real like that like having self doubt and like doubting yourself especially with something that is so uh so mentally like or not mentally but like something that's so platformy <laughs> like i'm putting myself out there sharing my opinions of of sci-fi anthology tv shows with the expectation that people will actually listen to it and and respect my opinion and be interested in my opinion when i'm just no one <laughs> i'm a dude in indianapolis so anyway it's a real thing and i really like seth rogan even in this small segment um kind of breathing life into what that feeling is and since it's seth rogan he's got this relatability to him and he's such a likable like presence on screen at least for me that just seeing him freak out over his writing is just a joy to watch like it's it's very entertaining and it seems like he has a lot of fun with uh fun with that short short segment and then we get betty gabriel coming in and that was a nice surprise because i like i don't watch the teasers before the episodes or anything so that was a nice surprise i had no idea that she was in the episode um and i thought that was a nice connection with with jordan peele since she was obviously in get out and so as the scene is progressing, the idea of Seth Rogen writing things that come to life around him, um, that idea, like, first of all, like, the way it's depicted in the episode, like, it doesn't, <laughs> it does not look like a good episode of The Twilight Zone. <laughs> like, if this episode within the episode was the real episode, Blurry Man, I would have been kind of, I would have been, it, I would have been fighting an uphill battle for interest because that short, teaser with like um with Betty Gabriel being like the reapers will be out soon like that it did nothing for me but I will say that the idea of Seth Rogen writing things that come to life around him is such a wonderful and to the show's 100% credit subtle nod to the original series season one finale a world of his own like I love that this series has paid homage to that episode in their own season one finale, like the original season one finale in their own season one finale. I don't know if that's intentional. <laughs> I really don't because Simon Kinberg, uh, like I'll reference his interview with TV guide, um, throughout this review and I'll link it in the show notes, but he mentions like in that review, he mentions that, yeah, I think we got, uh, most of our, most of our inspiration from time enough at last. Like he doesn't, he mentioned, he does not mention a world of his own at all. 
And that makes me think, like, did they just stumble upon this this completely coincidental homage that they paid to this original series episode? Um, I don't know. But, yeah, it, it's just, it's really interesting that they kind of stum- per- perhaps stumbled into it. A World of His Own, by the way, is an episode where um, a writer is dictating his stories and everything into a dictation machine and he creates people through his writing and at the end of the episode spoiler alert uh one of the fun most fun surprises in the original series that i've come across yet um rod serling makes his first appearance on screen um in the series and for his closing narration and uh the writer just erases him and it's it's such a fun fourth wall breaking thing and i just love that like all of that is not mirrored it's not it's not mirrored or anything but is is uh referenced in some capacity in this opening opening moment of the episode of this episode and i just really like that so then we get the fake opening narration i'm gonna go ahead and play that here um i was gonna do a whole thing where i was going to pretend like oh this is the opening narration but whatever so here's the opening narration witness adam wegman A writer who, up until tonight, has never paid much mind to the idea of an artist's social responsibility. He's about to learn that there's more to art than entertainment. He's about to, you know what? I think we can beat this. Um, is Sophie here? Cut. Sophie. That's a cut. Sorry, Owen. No, no, no. Uh, Sorry, guys. Hey, I'm cool. Your show, dude. And it's not the no opening narration, and it's so great. I love it so much. I really do. Like the the way that he's just like, you know what? I think we can beat this. Is like that. First of all, the delivery is on point, per- terrific, and it's such an amazing surprise. And it filled me with just so much goddamn joy in this episode. Like it was, it, it was amazing. I loved it. Um, and and to the show's credit, I actually like the sentiment of the original narration. Uh, Peel says a writer who up until tonight has never paid much mind to the idea of an artist's social responsibility. Like it feels like a comment on what the series has been doing so far for better or worse, or what the kind of the thesis statement of the show has been in this, in, um, iteration of, of the twilight zone. Um, and it's kind of an interesting way to kind of call attention to that or comment on that, in the season finale. I just, I just think that this episode is, works so well as a season finale of, of the Twilight Zone, especially for this season. It's really great. Um, and so I do have a, I don't know, question or, or a hypothetical to posit. So I kind of started to wonder, like when I was rewatching this episode, would this episode have been better if it wasn't a Twilight Zone writer at the forefront? And instead, what if Peel himself was grappling with the idea of being the narrator and taking over the Serling role? And like, what if that was the entire arc? Like, instead of having Sophie as a writer on the Twilight Zone, uh, being taunted by this mysterious figure, have Jordan Peel wander through the sets of the Twilight Zone, this new series, and have his, have him be a character who is experiencing self-doubt about taking on the Rod Serling role. And I don't know, part of me thinks that that wouldn't have worked at all because a, I think it would be too meta, like, or like way too meta in an already meta episode. Uh, cause Jordan Peele has said that he was nervous about taking on the Rod Serling role. Um, and I just feel like that would be way too, 
um, on the nose and kind of would have been too much of a wink at the audience. Um, and also, I don't think it would have gotten the same point across as, as Sophie's story did, which I'll get to in a bit. Um, but I think what the reason why I came up with that or the reason that I was like wondering that is that I really feel like Jordan Peele as a character in this episode is played up too much for comedy. Um, and just, and isn't, isn't played seriously enough for me. I'll, I'll, I'll get to that here in a second. But anyway, the real cold open opens. Wait, the real cold open begins and we're introduced to Zazie Beats as Sophie. So, I love, I love that Jordan Peele's like, hey, Sophie, walk with me. Uh, cause it's a good old fashioned walk and talk on TV. I love it. Um, so Sophie and Jordan Peele are talking about the opening narration and how they can fix it. And Sophie asks if it's too on the nose. Uh, while they're walking, Peele grabs a ba- bag of popcorn from someone. So I thought that, was, I, I don't know. I thought that was some cool, like, I don't know, uh, prop work. So they talk about the content of the narration and Jordan Peele says, I think we might be saying something we don't actually want to be saying. And I don't know. First of all, that just feels kind of empty. Like, like just, it, there's nothing there. It's kind of a hollow thing. And I just, like, this whole conversation feels like it could have been punched up a little bit more or had more, um, importance to it, I guess, or, or more, yeah, more character to it, really. But I will say that in this scene, I like the subtlety of the makeup lady constantly getting in Sophie's way in the shot. Um, so if you watch it, like, she's, like, clearly, like, it's like Sophie is fighting to be in the frame as this, as this makeup lady is touching up Jordan Peele's makeup. And at first I thought, oh, that's a fun fourth wall breaking thing. Like, I really thought that it was just about, like, oh, um, just since we're not in the show technically and we're within the show it's a show within a show um like we're not adhering to typical like film like filmmaking like framing and everything like i thought that that was really cool and funny but um the more i kind of thought about it and i saw some reactions online about this um it appears to be a lot more pointed than that so sophie is getting blocked by Sophie being a woman of color is getting blocked by a white woman in the shot constantly. And I thought that it was a really interesting visual metaphor for the struggle of people of color, color in media. Um, I thought that was really cool. And, and to, again, to its credit, like for a change, it's a nice kind of, it's kind of in your face, but it's also kind of subtle and it's just, it worked for me. I don't know. So back to Jordan Peele. Um, I really don't know how I feel about him in this episode. Um, the episode kind of pits him solely in the producer role of the new Twilight Zone, and he's kind of taking on a somewhat clueless, almost antagonistic role in this scene specifically. For example, so Sophie is talking about how the point of the episode is that they're, the episode that they're filming is the slippery slope from general audience science fiction and action to, as she puts it, idiocracy. And maybe I'm misreading it, but the way Peel says, like, he just kind of takes a beat and he says, well, our show is sci-fi. It feels a little too much like the episode is presenting him as the producer who doesn't get what he's producing, um, which I think that that as a dynamic works, could work great if Peel wasn't also the narrator of the series. Like, I feel like there's way too much importance in that role to mess with it in a fourth wall breaking episode. Um, I just, I just, I, it feels a little 
dodgy to me because as I said, Jordan Peele is the Rod Serling of this series. He is taking on that role, that mantle, um, to be the narrator of the series. Uh, and maybe that's, maybe that's not even fair to really call him like the Rod Serling of the series because he's not, I mean, he has a few story by credits, but he's not like writing the show or anything. He's just a producer and he's, um, producing it and hosting it and everything. But just the idea, like this series has been branded Jordan Peele's The Twilight Zone. Like that's how the marketing has done it. He's been front and center all along the way. So to have this fourth wall breaking episode where he is just the producer who maybe doesn't get it. And again, maybe I'm reading too much into something that isn't there, but I just felt like, I don't know, just the kind of hollowness of of his, of his arguments and everything. And the kind of, confused way he delivers it just didn't work for me um but i will say that on on the kind of flip side of that that exchange where he says that uh well um our show sci-fi um that whole sequence it does establish sophie's love of the twilight zone um and i'll go ahead and play a clip here i mean the twilight zone isn't just monsters on a plane wing right mm-hmm. if there's nothing being said of importance and it's just campfire stories so you don't like campfire stories? No, I did when I was a little girl. Look, what Rod Serling did was he took this silly genre kid stuff and he elevated it. He made art with it for grown-ups. And the reason he's in every episode... Well, he's, until now, right? Until now, sure. Um, but the reason... Set me this chair. Oh, okay, sorry. Um, so in this clip, again, and this is another kind of problematic thing for me, um, even though I do enjoy that it did set up her love of the Twilight Zone, and obviously that's going to be paid off at the end. Um, I appreciate that, and I really, I enjoy the episode for that, for that inclusion, I guess. However, this exchange, this dialogue, her, her kind of comments about the Twilight Zone don't really work for me. Um, so here's a couple of things. It, it just, it kind of, seems like they're trying to set up the ending way too much. So she says like, well, that's why Rod Serling was in every episode. And then again, Jordan Peele with the kind of clueless um, producer line, he's like, well, until now, meaning that Rod Serling isn't in every episode now. And it's like, duh. I mean, he's dead. Like it almost seems, I don't know if I'd say disrespectful, but it just seems like, like, what purpose does he have in saying, well, until now, other than to set up the fact that Rod Serling is going to make an appearance in this episode? Like, I, I honestly can't tell. Like, if you dig deeper into it and read it a different way, which I don't think the show is giving us, like, I don't think the intention of the show was for us to dig deeper to it, but I could see it meaning like, well, he's not part of the show now, so we can do whatever we want. Um, but I don't think the show is operating on that deep of a level. And even, that's not even really that deep of a level, really. Um, but just the way he says, well, until now, just, it feels so clunky and it, it really, for me, solely sets up the ending, which it's a good reason to have it in the scene, but there's not, there's no double meaning to it or anything. So unless it's to further establish Peel as a difficult producer, which as already stated, I'm not on board with. So I just, I just felt like that was kind of clunky and, and even unnecessary really. And then, uh, the next thing on Sophie's side is that she says, 
she says like she says that you know the twilight zone is about more than campfire stories and she says that uh she found herself always wondering when she watched it as a kid when do we get to the twilight zone i just i just remember when i was a little girl i would watch the show and i would think what is the twilight zone you know like when do we get to the twilight zone Mm. you know that's deep and again, this is really just kind of confusing to me. Like, it seems, it seems to only be there to set up the fact that Sophie herself is going into the actual Twilight Zone at the end of the episode. But there's no real double meaning or anything to it. Like, I don't, like, she's talking about how when she was a kid, she was, she would question, like, when do we get to the Twilight Zone? It's like, granted, I didn't watch the show as a kid, but like, when I'm watching the series, like, I don't think, like, well, when are we going to get to the Twilight Zone? Like, that's something that never crossed my mind. And I guess maybe that's unfair because at the end of the episode, she de- we do have that flashback where she's watching the TV and her the voiceover from her parents are kind of implying that she's living and breathing the show as people in her life in the episode are commenting on as well. So... Maybe it's just like she is saying that she has this yearning to get into the Twilight Zone, to to be a part of the Twilight Zone or be in the Twilight Zone. But if that's the purpose, and I think that that like I think that that's probably the the uh, intention of the writing on, on this episode. I just don't feel like it's clear enough, or it's it's too clunky and too leans too much on setting up the ending rather than actually giving us like uh, a deep character moment where. Uh, that that's layering that character or providing layers to the character, I guess. Um, also, Sophie's argument about Twilight Zone being more than campfire stories, it feels a little anachronistic to me. So she says that she loved the series as a kid. She, she has loved the series for most of her life. One of the great things about the Twilight Zone is how people grew up with it and were scared and entertained by it as kids. By definition... <laughs> For kids, it was a, it was campfire stories, like for the most part. And maybe this, maybe this isn't, I don't know, maybe, maybe that's, maybe that's unfair to, to, or reductive even. But I feel like she's saying that like, oh, this new series is, is, isn't going to be about campfire stories, which maybe this is a meta commentary on the season as a whole. But I, I don't know. Like, it's just, it's, it's weird that this show is branding this revival, um, as something that, uh, something more serious. And then in, in dialogue, actually kind of not discrediting, but kind of walking back and, and, uh, kind of disregarding the kind of, uh, campfire story nature for kids of the, of the show. It's, it's kind of, I don't know, maybe I, maybe I'm not articulating it correctly, but it's just, I don't know. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know. Um, but the whole fact that the new series is kind of lacking the kind of fun atmosphere of it and is leaning way too much on message on its message than anything else. Um, it's something that's been talked to death. It's something that I've been commenting on all season. So I'm not going to add to the, to the pile here, but just this idea, like Sophie and by extension, the real writers of the show are more concerned with message than anything. And it's what has ultimately held this revival back. And I find it interesting that the show actually comments on it here without the self-awareness that this is a property that also 
in its past has appealed to children and adults alike. And there are uh, generations of people who have grown up with the Twilight Zone and now, you know, kind of can't with this new iteration. But I don't know. Um, yeah, so let's move on. So Jordan Peele says, I just think the meaning is there with like the episode. And then he asks her to cut the art versus entertainment stuff and make it simple. Then he tries to explain, uh, or he tries to give an example and struggles to get the character's name right. And again, I just, I don't like the writing here. I really don't. Like, Peele as a character in this is just, he's almost bumbling and maybe that's, putting too fine a point on it, but I, like, I love his acting. I love Jordan Peele as an actor. His presence in the show is great as a narrator, but here, I just don't like the writing in this. I feel like they're doing something with him that is incongruous with, you know, what it should be, I guess. I don't know. So, Sophie in another scene is at her computer. Uh, nice Easter egg. She has a Serling sticker over the logo on her laptop. And I really enjoyed that. Um, so at this point she's, she's working on the opening narration and I've got to say, like, I kind of wish that the episode did something like this. So like later in the episode, her wife, presumably her girlfriend, it's never really clear, but I'm just going to say her wife, Anna, uh, says over the phone when they're FaceTiming as she's being chased, um, she says a couple of times, like, what you need is to go home and go to sleep. But she says what you need a couple of times. And I think it could have been so much fun if the writers had snuck in Twilight Zone titles in dialogue throughout the episode. Um, I obviously, I don't, I'm not saying that her saying what you need is a reference to the episode, what you need from the original series. But I just think that it could have been fun if they just sprinkled in like titles of the original series, Twilight Zone in dialogue out of context of like, uh, of the actual titles and everything. So for, for instance, in the scene where she is writing the narration, she could have included the words world of his own. And I thought that would have been kind of fun, but they didn't do it. And it may be for the best because I could see that, uh, becoming a little grating as the episode wears on. So she's talking to her wife, Anna, and she comments on how Sophie is trying to save the world. And that's kind of what I appreciate about this episode. Like say what you will about the season as a whole. This episode really demonstrates that the writers are aware of the weight that is on their shoulders in writing the twilight zone. And they totally get points from me on that score because I feel like this episode as a whole, Blurry Man is demonstrating that they, they know what they're doing. They, or they know the position that they have been put in and they know the importance of it. So I just, I, I really appreciate the episode for that, for that reason or for those reasons. Um, so the stage manager lady comes up and says that Jordan Peele is waiting and Again, it's kind of painting him as a pain in the ass slightly. Like she says, like, like he's, he's, he's waiting. Um, I, again, I just don't know how I feel about that. But fortunately, he's not going to be in the episode much, uh, as we go on. So we'll kind of table that, um, disappointment. Um, probably for good for this whole, uh, for the rest of this review. So we get the new opening sequence and we're brought back in with Betty Grable's, or Betty, see? Uh, Betty Gabriel's The Reapers will be out soon. And then we get the new opening narration, uh, which I'll play here. Picture, if you will, a storyteller. 
finally getting to tell the story of a lifetime. Except the story is one of inexplicable terror, and the lifetime is her own. Her name is Sophie Gelson. She has little patience for childish diversions or daydreams, but she won't be able to tune out or turn away from what lurks blurry in the background of her own show. She is about to learn that when blurry comes to focus, there can be no escape from the fate laid out for her in the Twilight Zone. <laughs> okay. <laughs> No, I, I no. It honestly sounds like a better episode. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, what's going on? So, the the cue cards are about Sophie, and I I just love the way the show just goes into the opening credits. Um, just like <laughs> like the way Jordan feels like, what's going on? I just, I love it. And when he says when he finishes the opening narration, he's like in the twilight zone. It's just it's so fun. It's a it like in this moment. This is a super fun, energetic episode, and I kind of wish that it would have sustained itself in that in that regard, because uh, I do have some issues kind of as the episode progresses. But in this moment, this is a this is a massively fun episode. So after the opening credits, Sophie approaches Jordan uh, to tell him that it wasn't her, and they have another walk and talk. He grabs more popcorn, and like before that, she she looks around and she's clearly uncomfortable, and this is where. Peel gets a little bit of a redemptive arc because um, he's totally understanding. He's cool with it. He says that it could be a prank for a blooper reel, and she says that it isn't funny. And I like I love this. Um, he says a prank for a blooper. Wow. No. Oh my god. But a blooper reel for anthology. Anyway, he says a prank for a blooper reel that isn't funny. Um, and I put in my notes. I I quoted that, and then I put in all caps. Thank you. Because I really, I just, I've never been a fan of like gag reels or blooper reels as special features. Um, like they're fun in short spurts, but like if you're sitting there watching like just blooper reels, like in, in content, like, uh, forever, like that's torture to me. <laughs> Cause eventually just the novelty wears off and it's, it's not funny to me. Um, so anyway, Peel says that it's a good idea for an episode, like a writer who can't face her fears. And I just, I like that. I like the kind of, kind of pleasant tone that Jordan Peele has. Like, obviously, like, they're, the production is maybe not in jeopardy, but it is, it has suffered a big setback, which we'll go into here, here in a second. Um, but Jordan Peele is kind of cool and calm and collect and everything, and then he's going to the bathroom. Um, so Sophie goes up to, I think it's the same stage manager lady. And I like that she's like freaking out about the director being really upset. And Sophie just like says, I promise you, I care about the show at least as much as you do. And I really, I like that. I, I thought that that was a nice touch and a good, um, a good way to kind of maybe not expand her character, but to, um, but to, uh, a good way to kind of reinforce her position in the episode as, as someone who has, who lives and breathes the twilight zone. And also the scene establishes the blurry man in the library scene. So, and this is as good a time as any regarding the blurry man. Um, I figured it was Serling early on. Like, I mean, who or what else could it have possibly been? And I'm not saying that to be like, Oh, I guessed it beforehand. Like I, it, I, in the grand scheme of things, I don't care. Like it, it, it didn't diminish the quality of the episode knowing that it is, or like having the idea that, Oh yeah, that's, that's definitely Sterling. 
but uh it was just kind of obvious from the, from the start of the introduction there but what i really appreciate about this episode is that they actually had the balls to do it like that they actually brought rod serling into the show like that really takes just guts and like that's uh, like that is something that I would assume was not something that was considered lightly or like thought about lightly because as I said, this episode kind of demonstrates that they're aware of the weight of the twilight zone property on their shoulders. So like the idea and in the TV guide article, I'm going to reference later, uh, um, Simon Kinberg does mention that this was one of the first ideas that they had when he and Jordan Peele met and were kind of talking about the show. Uh, that they would do a meta episode, but like just the idea of bringing Rod Serling back using CGI and voice actors and everything. Um, that's not something that I would assume that they would have taken lightly. Um, and I just, I just like that they went for it. And I'm also just absolutely amazed that they managed to sneak the blurry man into every episode while for the most part evading detection. Um, so like it was like, we see the figure in replay, but that wasn't blurry. Like that seemed more like a one-off nod to Rod Serling because it was just center frame there. Um, and I, okay. So I've been listening to a ton of different podcasts, uh, reviewing this, this season of the twilight zone and not one, I think only one podcast noticed the blurry man, other than other than in replay so like this one i don't remember which podcast it was i'm so sorry um but they noticed the blurry man in the supermarket um in point of origin and like i i think i think that that was it um it might have been the twilight highlight zone anyway um but they they noticed it early in the season they were like oh are they gonna do this every episode uh which i thought was kind of funny other than that, no one seemed to catch on that there was this blurry man in every episode. And I'm so impressed by that, given the objectively lack, uh, objective, like the overall objective lack of subtlety throughout this entire season, because they have hit us over the head with a lot of stuff. And I just really am so impressed. And this is such a backhanded compliment, but I'm so impressed that they did this without being noticed. Um, and it makes me wonder if there's going to be a Rod Serling nod in every episode of season two, like not necessarily a blurry man, but I could see like every season having some kind of nod to Rod Serling that runs the entire season. Um, that's subtle enough, not, not to say that every season finale ha- should be like a meta fourth wall breaking thing, but I could see like a cool Easter egg of like having every episode have like one tiny Easter egg that please for the love of God is as subtle as the blurry man, or maybe more subtle, um, in every episode in each season kind of being a different Easter egg. I think, I think that that could be kind of cool. So Sophie goes to the editing bay to find out more about this blurry man phenomenon. And it's such a good concept. Like it's creepy. Um, and the blurry, the blurry man in the scene in the library is incredibly visible. So like that kind of increases the creep factor to me because obviously it's like an ominous set that they're, that they're filming on. It's dark, it's nighttime and everything. And it's a library and libraries are scary. Um, but the, the, the fact that he's so visible in the frame is just like kind of creepy. And, uh, it's, it's again, it's just a cool concept. Um, and then they look at a frame from the comedian and sure enough, he's there. And I just, I just, I like that. Cause like when I saw that in the episode, the first time I was like, I, I, Again, I've seen these episodes 
countless times, I had no, like, that did not register with me in the comedian at all. Um, and I just, I, I love it. Uh, I just think that's really, really clever. So, Sophie starts wandering around, around the set, and this is kind of where the episode loses just a little bit of steam for me, or a bit of steam for me. Um, like, the whole mystery is ominous. Uh, like, it's, 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 the tone is, is there. But I already figured out the blurry man was Serling, so that aspect of this whole eerie chase sequence didn't work for me, nor did it really need to. Um, but just, I wasn't engaged by the mystery of it because I figured like, oh, it's the figure of Rod Serling. I was curious how they were going to resolve that and how it was going to come into play later in the episode or at the end of the episode. But I figured like, that's what they were doing. And so, um, I don't know. So she wanders into the library set. She sees a, the cue card saying Sophie is about to learn and this is where the episode just goes full slasher flick. And while I appreciate that, like I love slasher movies, uh, the suspense didn't really work for me. And this is one, like here where she calls Anna and she's like kind of talking to her as she's wandering around the set. Uh, this is one of probably a few references to the Scream franchise I'm going to make. But like that feels so much like Jenny McCarthy's scene in Scream 3 where, um, where she's an actress and, and she's called by the murderer and stuff and she's an anti-vaxxer or whatever. Um, so, um, no, but no, so it just feels, red, um, redundant. No, it feels derivative of Scream 3. Um, and it, cause like the whole meta slasher thing has been, has been done. And this is what the episode is, is it's a slasher for it's a slasher flick for the for the most part it's a chase sequence that doesn't have the slasher payoff either um so here's where anna says what you need is not a friendly voice what you need is to go home and sleep for 20 hours and she says you're eating and breathing the show like it's curing cancer and again that's just reinforcing her position uh sophie's position on the twilight zone um and how it is kind of consuming her life and that's when like the kind of call kind of cuts out. Um, and it's, it's gets very staticky and everything again, that brought up memories of scream Two this time with, um, Oh, I can't remember her name. Sarah Michelle Geller, right? Yes. So Sarah Michelle Geller scene in scream Two, where she's in the sorority house and she's called by Ghostface, and, and it cuts out a little bit as, or she's called by her sorority sister. Oh, who cares? So <laughs> it just, it reminded me in here of the, of that. And it's again, and I've made scream references before, like in, um, not all men. I mentioned the, the score sounds a lot like scream in, in that home invasion portion of the episode. And again, it's not, I don't think it's necessarily by mistake because, uh, Marco Beltrami is one of the composers of the score in this, in this season of the show. Um, so I don't know. Maybe I was just too focused on that or it really is derivative. So I don't know. Let me know what you think. If it, if it, if it evoked, uh, memories of Scream and if it worked for you in, in a more broad sense. So anyway, so she's wandering around, she sees the blurry man and she hides behind some shelves. I think at this part, uh, yeah, at this part she's in like kind of a grocery store or supermarket set. I think it maybe, maybe it's a supermarket set from point of origin. Um, and so she yells at the blurry man asking if he got his footage and, um, she's, 
Okay, so she says footage of footage of them scaring a woman won't play well on Deadline. And first of all, um, I don't know that I buy Zazie Zazie Beetz's fearful acting in this episode. Um, it just comes across as a little bit forced, and I don't want to say that that's a problem with her performance per se, but it's I think it's more it's more the fact that she doesn't have enough to play off of, and that's something that. I kind of appreciate in a broad sense of the term or broad sense of, uh, the episode as a, as an homage to the original series, because the original series had a lot of like one handers where like an actor is, um, is kind of reacting of over nothing. And it's uh, like, it's something that the original series really excelled at. But here I feel like that's, it comes across as a little hammy, like her acting here. Um, and also, it just it kind of rubs me the wrong way. The fact that she's like if scaring a woman won't p- play well on Deadline. Um, it just felt a little forced, and that's what I'll say about that. It's not, it's whatever. Um, so yeah, and just the way she delivers the line. Um, how do you think that's going to play out on Deadline? I just i I didn't buy it. I didn't. I just didn't buy it. I thought that it could have been better. So she finally like faces the blurry man and tells tells her to tells him to like bring it or whatever <laughs> and he uses some telekinesis style powers or telekinetic kind of powers to push the shelves shelves over and that's when the chase is on and as a, as much as i love and have praised the music throughout most of the season uh most notably like in 6 degrees of freedom um here the score just sounds really generic to me like I know it felt like Marco Beltrami and the other composer whose name escapes me now were just kind of rehashing some basic slasher flick kind of music as Sophie's running through the set. Um, and it just, it, it just didn't do anything for me. So she sends up, she ends up in the bar set from the Wonderkind. And I like that wide shot of her in the bar with the kind of circly lights on either side of her. Um, like I'm, I'm, I don't know much about filmmaking or anything, but um, I'm sure that listeners will sense a pattern that I like that kind of visual symmetry after hearing me praise the framing of 100 Yards Over the Rim um, a couple weeks ago. So she picks up a book titled Blurry Man. And that's where the, the like we get this really cool like flip book effect. So she's flipping through the book and the drawing of the blurry man is growing bigger and bigger and moving as a flip book. And it's like, it's, it's coming out of the, out of the book. Um, and I just, I love that. I think that that's really effective and really cool and unsettling. Um, but I kind of feel like the prop department, I don't want to say the prop department dropped the ball with the book, but I think that, I don't know, maybe that's not fair, but I I think that it could have been cool if the book was something substantial, like a Twilight Zone related book in some capacity. But then again, I guess that would have kind of tipped their hand a little uh to the ending but i just kind of because it's like some weird book about irish uh genealogy i think i don't know but i don't know so it it just it kind of felt weird that like it's called blurry man but it's about like this irish family or whatever it seems at least i don't know i didn't look too hard at it so the bottles start flying across the bar, and as uninterested as I am in this whole portion of this this episode, I kind of like this sequence a lot. Like she runs out, uh, or like she's like she's freaking out because the it's cool because it's like it's the 
the bottles are flying from from the bar over to the other side of the of the bar and it just is a cool effect so she runs out onto the street set and she trips over a piece of equipment and again i don't really buy her scared acting here um she doesn't have a lot to play off of so it's not really her fault again but i just i feel like it's a little there's it's too focused on the pursuit rather than like giving her anything meaty to work on acting wise. And at this point she, (laughs) she's yelling for help and she yells, is there anybody um, when she's yelling for help? And again, I just have to bring it up. How fun would it have been if she had yelled, where is everybody Um, as a nod to the original twilight zone? Uh, I just, that could have been fun, but anyway, I digress. So uh, I, and I don't know if people would have hated it or not. Like that could have been just too on the nose, but again, I digress. Uh, so she sees the TV sets in the storefront and again, that kind of evokes scream also. Like, I don't know why I'm connecting so much of it to scream, I guess, because it's very slashery on a TV slash film set in some of its circumstances, but I don't know. It just, I, it, it felt a little bit not derivative here per se, but it just evoked thoughts of scream. So the static TVs have this distorted sound, which is pretty freaky. And I believe that part of the sound is taken from like Serling's own like voice, voiceovers. Um, I think that that's what uh, Kenberg said in the TV guide um, interview. So the TV shows, the TVs show her the blurry man and it's very, very quick, but I paused every frame <laughs> um, and watched uh, and, and took note of each one that they show. So they show, and they show all of them. Like, I was really surprised because, like, when I saw the episode the first couple of times, I thought that they were just rapid fire doing a few of them. But no, it's every episode. So first up, we get replay, which is funny because in that shot, he wasn't, he, like, he was blurry in, um, in the shot in Blurry Man. But in the actual episode, he wasn't blurry. And I kind of wonder, the kind of cynic in me kind of wonders if maybe they intended him for him to be blurry, but they didn't have enough coverage to show him blurred out without drawing a lot of attention to it. Because in replay, like it's very, very like kind of center and frame and very, it occupies a lot of screen space. Um, so maybe they had no choice, but to have him be clear or uh, in focus. Uh, next we see is Nightmare at 30,000 Feet by the Magazine Rack, which, again, I have watched these episodes so many times and I never caught these Easter eggs. And just hats off to, to, to the uh, show for that. Uh, next after that is The Comedian, which we'd already seen. Then The Wonderkind, and, and that is in the hallway with all the campaign signs right before the debate prep scene in that episode. Then a traveler in the background of a shot from the party where, uh, in that, in that particular frame, uh, Jacques is in focus. Uh, six degrees of freedom. This one is interesting and it's, it was, must have been pretty tricky because, uh, obviously five characters in, in a space, in a, in a spaceship is hard to sneak in this blurry man thing, but he's v- barely visible in the framed graduation picture of the crew. Um, so he's, he's in there. And at, the, at that point, I took notice that, that, of course, all of these are Whipple TVs um, that are in the shot in Blurry Man. So next up is Not All Men, background when the women are running through the chaos of the town, specifically when they're about to pass the toy store. Um, then Point of Origin, as mentioned before, was in the supermarket scene. And finally, the Blue Scorpion is uh, the Blurry Man is passing by Jeff as he's walking to his office. Um, 
and just again, I was just so surprised surprised that they showed every Easter egg in this uh, in this episode here. Um, just rapid fire. And you could argue that maybe that's them holding the audience's hand a little bit, but I don't know. It, it was kind of cool to see to see the influence of the Blurry Man throughout every episode in one fell swoop. So the next shot we see is the TVs are showing her confronting the Blurry Man in the library, and like it's very, it's kind of brief, but um, I like how in this context or in this scene, the Blurry Man is kind of the blurry man slash the twilight zone as, as uh, in kind of broad terms is guiding her to Serling in this, in this scene. I thought that was, that was a nice touch and that was pretty cool. Um, so then the blurry man appears in the street and I'll go ahead and play a clip here to demonstrate Zazie beats performance here. Um, I get it. Jordan's putting you up to this, right? Because it's real. Because horror is real. The genre stuff isn't just bullshit. People really do stalk each other, put each other in crazy, sadistic, fucking insane situations. You maniac! You think it's funny to scare people? Look at me! This isn't some fucking sketch! It's people's lives! And again, like, I... Like, she's a talented actress, but the dialogue is just a little weak and it feels like filler to me. Like, it feels like, it feels like the show is just trying to get us to Serling at this point without giving us anything really substantial. Um, and it just, the dialogue just didn't work for me. And, and again, she, like, she falls down in a very tropish way and it just, it, it bothers me a lot. Um, kind of similar to my complaints about not all men. Um, and like the way she says, like, I never meant to question Jordan again, that's reinforcing the whole, like, Oh, Jordan, Jordan Peele is like a malevolent producer character. And I just, I don't buy it. I don't like it. Um, so the blurry man overtakes her and we fade to black and we come back and he's gone. Um, so that kind of just felt a little hollow as well. Um, but this is where the episode takes another slight turn. It's where we get Sophie's voice in her head. Um, and I'm glad we're past the whole slasher chase sequence, even though we'll get back to that here in a second or here in a moment. But I'd be lying if I said that this whole like her talking to herself thing was um was a big enough improvement for me to regain my interest in and in, or my uh my enjoyment of this episode or of this, not of this episode, not of this episode, but of this moment or of this part of the episode. Cause it's a really good episode. I just, I just, I just lost interest when they did the whole slashers chase sequence. Um, so the voice is telling her that it's really happening and that it's crazy. And here Sophie says, you can't say crazy because it stigmatizes mental illness. Um, and again, it's the show still kind of overdoing it with social commentary or what have you. And I just, that felt a little forced as well. Um, so she's limping through the sets and as she's talking to her inner voice. And like it's a good release of tension because the blurry man is no longer chasing her and it brings us into the more out there or like introduces us to the more out there metaphysical like thing that's going to carry through throughout the end of the episode. Um, and then it's gone just as quick as it's there because she yells that she's talking to herself and the voice goes away. 
So she finds herself back in the library set, the library set, and grabs a lamp to defend herself. And I kind of feel like the end of the episode could have come here and like have Serling come out and usher her into the Twilight Zone and roll credits because at this point we have like 10 minutes to go and it's just, it feels like the episode has kind of exhausted its, um, more action oriented set pieces. And it's just, maybe it's just the fact that I was really excited to get back to the Serling part of it that I just kind of felt in my subsequent viewings after the first viewing, I felt like this was kind of where the episode dragged a little bit and was a little bit unnecessary. So the blurry man is in the, is in the library. And despite me not having that much interest anymore, or no, despite my interest waning slightly, I'll say that, um, it's still a pretty creepy moment. Like he turns on the lights and does the whole telekinetic book throwing thing. Um, and that's freaky. That's, that's unsettling and everything. Um, and it's, I guess it's a fine, not, not really a fine fake out for, for it, but it's just, I don't know. It's it kind of, it's whatever. I don't, I'm going to just ride the fence on that. It's fine. Uh, so Sophie runs out of the set and at this point, no one can see or hear her and the blurry man is, is kind of gaining on her. And I like that, but I have to say that I think that it could have like this portion of the episode where she is wandering the set as the blurry man is chasing her and no one on set can see or hear her or it like that whole segment could have replaced the entire like slasher stalker sequence earlier, like entirely like sure. We had that release of tension with her inner voice so that the episode flows kind of well in that respect. It goes slasher inner voice, uh, invisible blurry man. But I think this this sequence itself with her being invisible to a certain, to a certain degree is far more interesting than the slasher and stalker sequence that we had earlier. And I would have liked this portion to have more screen time. Um, so I don't know. I just think it could have worked better if it was, if that was the kind of focal point of, of the arc of the, of Sophie. So she runs into another show set while they're filming and we get the supremely random Jason Priestley cameo. Um, and so this is how I found the TV guide article because I was like, I thought like, Oh, I'll, I'll out clever like <laughs> the Twilight Zone and figure out why Jason Priestley has a cameo. Cause I, like I went onto his IMDb and I was like, okay, does he have any like, is he like a series regular on, on strange angel, whatever that show is. Um, uh, but he's not, uh, he has no like affiliation with CBS. And I thought like, well, 90210 is being rebooted. Was that on CBS? But no, that was on Fox. Uh, so I found the TV guide article and Simon Kimberg said that he, when they were making this episode, they wanted a show within a show within a show. And they had compiled a list of actors who were also shooting in, I think it was Vancouver. And he specifically chose Jason Priestley because, uh, Kenberg was a huge 90210 fan growing up, apparently. Um, and he said that he was a delight to work with on set and all that. Um, so I, that's a little, uh, interesting tidbit about the Jason Priestley, um, cameo there. Um, and again, I'll put the link in the show notes to the TV guide article that I'm referencing here. So, as Sophie is kind of escaping the blurry man or trying to, he pushes the craft service table, um, and I like those effects, but like, this is really all he's doing. This is really all that's coming. It's all just surface level fright 
And it's just, it's starting to wear thin on me, even more so than, you know, it was before. And then Sophie's inner voice comes back and it tells her to stop and says, you can't run from this. You can't hide from it. And says that it's not some campfire story. And so she is basically telling her that she has to open her eyes to the blurry man. And finally, we're getting to the end. <laughs> we're getting to, we're getting to, to the big moment. So I'm excited. Um, and so as if we need more reinforcement of that or more, uh, more just surface level dialogue, she says, okay, blurry man, I'm ready. I'm ready to see. Um, which I felt like that piece of dialogue was a little unnecessary. Like they could have just shown and not told us, but whatever. So at this moment, he transforms into black smoke and it envelops her. Um, and just, of course, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that is reminded me of lost. And I kind of wonder if that was, I don't think that I doubt that there was an intentional homage, but it just reminded me of, of lost. So this is the moment where we get a flashback to Sophie as a little girl watching the twilight zone. Specifically, she's watching time enough at last. It's kind of toward the end, or I think that's really kind of two, two thirds of the way through it. So where Bemis is, is wandering the wasteland and Kinberg had noted in that TV guide article that Sophie was kind of closed off in a similar way to Bemis in that episode of, of the original series. And I feel like that isn't really communicated that well in the episode. Like I kind of wish I kind of think, I feel like they could have done more to demonstrate that um, because I did not pick up on that character trait of Sophie being closed off um, in a similar way to Bemis um, in the actual episode at all. So in the flashback, we get uh, the voiceover of her dad saying, it's just make-believe stories. She needs to go out into the real world. Um, which I thought was cool. Like, I, I thought that that was, that was interesting. It speaks to my obsessive viewer sensibilities, I guess. Um, so she's brought back and everything's kind of back to normal. She hands the new narration to Jordan. And I think that this is a pretty cool false ending. Like, everything seems to be wrapping up. Like, uh, Jordan Peele compliments the new narration. They're ready to go. They're about to shoot. And then we get the, uh, Sophie gets her voice in her head saying, did you think it was over? And saying that there's more to see. And I, I like that. So this is the, this is the kind of crowning achievement of this episode in my eyes. Uh, the camera spins around and the show switches to black and white. And I love that. It's a very cool effect. And more importantly, it's slow. Like the music, like, okay, so it's slowly done. So, like, the camera is spinning around very slowly, and then the music it has more life than it has all episode. Like, the music, like, they brought it when they, when they composed the score for this, for this segment, um, and for the rest of the episode. So, all of that is just really cool effect. And it just, it is showcasing that Sophie has indeed entered into the Twilight Zone. So, she wanders the set, and, um, it seems like obviously it's a recreation of sorts of time enough at last, uh, not an exact replica, thankfully, like it's its own thing. Um, and as she's walking the steps to the library, she passes by Bemis's shattered glasses, which I, I love. I think I thought that that was such a nice touch. I, I love it so much. I do want to mention that the Twilight Zone social media page, uh, like on Facebook and Twitter and everything shared a gif of the shattered glasses and they said like it's time time enough at last to reveal another easter egg uh did you catch this when you watched it i'm like 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 most easter eggs are like <laughs> like a majority of easter eggs that were in the season like it is 
it is so not hidden <laughs> like it's so like because it's right there like it's the camera like zooms in on these these freaking glasses like you like and it's one of the most iconic episodes of the original series like you would have to like i don't know like you would have to just have no clue about you would have to be me before starting this episode or before starting this podcast to actually like get to, to miss that easter egg and even then i knew about time enough at last so i would have gotten it um, I don't know. So she enters the library for her final confrontation with the blurry man. And here, here is a clip of her kind of talking about trying to figure out what's going on. What did I do wrong? I did everything I could. Did, did I learn the wrong lesson? What was I supposed to do? This is the end. The end of the episode. It's a cruel twist. The ironic fate. It doesn't matter. What I do is. So I love how this brings us to an additional layer of meta on on the show. So she is this writer who has been obsessed with the Twilight Zone and she knows it like like the back of her hand and she finds herself in in the in the show that she is creating and or in a version of the show. And she's questioning, like, this is the, like, this is some cruel twist, uh, an ironic fate. And like, she doesn't know, like, what's going to happen. And I just, I, I, again, I just like the additional layer of meta-ness on that. So in my notes, I have Rod Serling has entered the game. <laughs> and this is where he reveals himself. And honestly, okay, this is a nitpick. I appreciate what they did. I love this. I love everything about this ending. I really, really do. However, I would be remiss if I didn't mention the CGI is just slightly off. Like, it's a little bit Uncanny Valley, but that it's 100% a minor nitpick on my part. And I don't, like, I don't expect CBS All Access to have, say, the same money that Disney and Marvel had for Captain Marvel. Um, I just, so I, I just, I just want to recognize that, like, the CGI was a little bit, eh to me but it was I, the sentiment was there and it got a, its point across and also the music swells here i love it the full effect of this scene regardless of my uh nitpicking about the cgi this the full effect of the scene gives me chills every time i see it um and so here i'll play a clip of rod serling in blurry man it's you i take it i have your attention good there's a lot to explain. Wait. Where? What is this place? I think you know where we are. It's where you belong. You're ready now, Sophie. We've got a lot of work to do. So... 
This is the moment where I well up with tears and chills run down my spine every single time. It's so effective. And I adore what this episode does. I really do across the board, even if it means I had to go through a somewhat lackluster stalker slasher sequence. This payoff is so incredible. And I, I love the way that this episode in a roundabout way is about the writer struggling with what, like struggling with the importance of their work. Um, and the weight of their work. So the episode began with Seth Rogen doubting himself, talking about imposter syndrome. And it ends with the Twilight Zone writer accepting the hand of Rod Serling so that he can guide her into the Twilight Zone and perhaps pass the torch. And again, it's showing that the writers embodied by Sophie's character are accepting their responsibility to carry on Serling's legacy and carry on the the legacy of the twilight zone and it strikes such a deep chord. I, I love it. And it strikes a chord with me specifically, like the way that I read it. And I know that a lot of people are really enamored with this. Um, uh, like fans, I, I remember on Twitter fans were going crazy about it when it, when it, when they watched it. Um, and I, I love it because those fans watched it when they were a kid. um, and and loved it and they it just resonated with them here it resonates with me in a different way like i started this podcast way back in 2015 it'll be 4 years ago this august and um aside from the fact that i'm only just now finishing up season 2 let's let's not let's just kind of ignore that um and when i started it i thought it would be a fun challenge to do a solo podcast and a good excuse to watch a classic tv show that i'd never seen also, to be perfectly honest, I wanted it to expand my obsessive viewer brand in some capacity because I, at the time I was only doing, uh, the obsessive viewer podcast. And I kind of hoped that, you know, if I branched out and did a more niche show, it would bring more people over to the obsessive viewer. I never anticipated the passion and the fervor of the Twilight Zones fan base when I started this project. Um, and it's such a great community centered around what is undeniably one of the greatest shows in television history. And I just, I love it. So that imposter syndrome, um, that Seth Rogen's character was, was, uh, referencing in the beginning was totally there for me. <laughs> like, uh, even after, even after a couple of hiatuses on the podcast, one for seven months, that was directly the result of imposter syndrome on my part and the other for a year, which was mostly due for, due to burnout and limited free time. I still find this podcast to be the most challenging and most fulfilling of everything that I do really creatively. Um, because the twilight zone keeps becoming a bigger and bigger part of my life. And I, I love it for that. I, I'm so thankful that I decided to do this. Um, so seeing Sophie being guided into the Twilight Zone by Serling himself, um, and becoming a part of it evokes such a strong emotion out of me because it feels like by doing this podcast, and I'm going to get a little sentimental here. Um, I'm not only discovering one of the best shows of all time, nor nor am I discovering one of my favorite shows of all time, because that's exactly what the Twilight Zone is turning out to be, but I'm seeing firsthand how the show and its ideas and morals are shaping my life and how I view the world. Like, I am being, like, sculpted, in a sense, <laughs> by watching this show. 
Um, and it's just, it's something that's, and I'm super thankful that I have this platform to share my journey through the Twilight Zone, as I say at the beginning of the episodes. Um, because it's so, like, I feel myself changing and becoming a slightly less obnoxious person. <laughs> Uh, or a better person in some capacity. So anyway, I'm super thankful. And that's why this part resonated with me in such a big way. And it's just, it's such a phenomenal ending. And my various problems or issues with this new series as a whole, as small as they may be compared to more vocal critics, um, the end of blurry man makes me truly appreciate this series more like this new iteration of the twilight zone. And in a weird sense, it makes me nostalgic for something that I've been discovering off and on for the last four years, um, and am currently in the process of discovering with each episode that I release. So I just, I adore this episode and it's, I don't know that I'll be able to watch it without getting teary eyed because it, it has such a profound impact. Um, each time that I've watched it and you can, and that's evidenced by the fact that my voice just cracked really, really awkwardly. Um, so we get the closing narration for this episode and this season. And this time it's from Rod Serling, uh, voiced by, um, Mark Silverman, who was the, um, uh, the voice, uh, the voice of the, uh, Twilight Zone Tower of Terror. Um, so anyway, here's, here's the closing narration from Rod Serling. What do we do when our world is turned upside down? When everything we thought to be true is ripped away? and we're forced to face a new reality. Sophie Gilson has just awoken to the fact that when we put away childish things, we may be closing our eyes instead of opening them. And that perhaps our only hope is to face all reality. A multitude of truths not shrinking from that vital, arrogant, fatal, dominant X beyond imagination, but to embrace it. To open ourselves to the unknown. Not the end of the story, but a new beginning for the Twilight Zone. And just, just that last line, not the end of the story, but a new beginning for the Twilight Zone, like tears. I, I get teary eyed, chills down my spine. Beautiful, beautiful. Um, and that closes out season one of Monkey Paw Productions CBS All Access exclusive, The Twilight Zone. Um, and, uh, to kind of reference that, um, uh, to, to reference that, uh, oh, actually, this isn't that. Oh, sorry. Uh, to reference how they, how they achieve the CGI, um, I have a link to an article from MeTV dot com, which is actually me TV is actually airing uh, the eighties twilight zone series. If you have me TV, um, and they have a quote just talking about the CGI version of Rod Serling in this episode that I'll go ahead and read, uh, Serling's signature face, signet, <laughs> Serling's signature facial tics emulated by actor Ryan Hesp, his oddly imposing stances recreated by actor Jefferson Black and his iconic voice revived by voice actor Mark Silverman, who you should know is no stranger to the eerie classic series. Uh, he's uh, actually the voice actor tapped by Disney Parks for their Twilight Zone attractions, so he's actually voiced Serling for decades. Um, check that out. I have the link in the show notes, and then that TV Guide article 
is also linked in the show notes. Um, it's really interesting. Simon Kimberg, uh, kind of opens up about the series as a whole and, uh, kind of the inspirations for a lot of things and uh, some of the reactions too. So check that out. I put the link in the show notes and everything. And that does it for my bonus review series of the 2019 Twilight Zone. I, man, this has been fun. Um, uh, thank you guys for indulging me in talking about this new series. And uh, this has been such a uh, challenge for me and so satisfying and fulfilling because Again, like I have the benefit of six decades worth of information to call for the main episode reviews. Um, and kind of the main shtick of that is I kind of have that, that appeal of like, oh, I'm watching the original series for the first time. Here with these bonus episodes, uh, everyone's watching them for the first time. <laughs> so I was a little bit of a disadvantage. So I worked really hard to, to, uh, review these episodes as best as I could. I hope you guys enjoyed them. Thank you guys so much for the feedback. We're going to have one more bonus episode about this season of the Twilight Zone. Uh, me and Tiny, as I said, if we've already recorded it, I'm bringing Tiny from uh, the Obsessive Viewer on as a guest. Uh, so we're going to talk about that. And then on the main feed, we have Shadow Play coming up, which um, I haven't watched the 80s version yet, but I have watched the uh, original series one, and I am very excited to talk about that. So basically on the feed, it'll be this episode, obviously, um, Shadow Play, then the Twilight Zone season one uh, in review episode. And then, uh, yeah, after that, what is the next episode? Oh, The Mind and the Matter. Um, and then after that, I'm going to go right into my... Um, uh, Black Mirror bonus review series. So check all that out. Let me know what you thought of this season of the Twilight Zone and what you thought of these reviews and everything. Um, yeah, just let me know what you think. You know where to reach me and I'll, if you don't, I'll have it play in the, uh, pre-recorded outro. And once again, definitely check out Submitted for Your Approval, uh, from Brandon Cruz. Uh, he, uh, is such a, such a fun, fun host to, talk to and chat about the twilight zone with and i'm super excited that i uh, was invited on to the show again so check that out and i'll share it on social media and everything so follow me there if you want a link to the direct episode but do yourself a favor and go ahead and subscribe to brandon's show so having said all that i am closing the book on these uh bonus reviews and uh yeah so thank you guys so much for listening and uh i'll see you next time Anthology is edited and produced by Matt Hurt and presented by ObsessiveViewer.com. For a full archive of our episodes, go to AnthologyPod.com slash archive. You can also like the Facebook page at Facebook.com slash AnthologyPod and follow the show on Twitter at OVAnthologyPod. If you enjoy the show, please take a couple minutes to leave us a rating and a quick review on Apple Podcasts. This is the easiest way to support what we do, and all it costs is a little bit of your time. If you'd like to donate to the podcast, you can make a PayPal donation at anthologypod.com slash donate or support us on Patreon for recurring donations and access to commentary tracks and B-roll audio recorded exclusively for patrons at patreon.com slash obsessive viewer. Every donation goes toward paying the fees to keep the podcast running and is greatly appreciated. 
Official Anthology merch, including shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more, can be found in the Obsessive Viewer's Public store. You can find a link to the store in the show notes of this episode and at anthologypod.com slash donate. Or you can simply search for Obsessive Viewer at tpublic.com. For information about the Obsessive Viewer's annual live event showcasing short horror films from local filmmakers, check out shocktoberinirvington.com. And for an archive of all our events, as well as news about potential future events, head over to obsessiveviewer.com slash live. For more podcast content, you can find our flagship movie and TV review and discussion show, The Obsessive Viewer Podcast, at obsessiveviewer.com, and on Twitter at obsessiveviewer. You can also find Tower Junkies, a podcast where Matt and co-host Tiny share their love of all things Stephen King and his magnum opus, The Dark Tower series, over at TowerJunkiesPod.com and at TowerJunkiesPod on Twitter. And finally, check out The Secular Perspective, Tiny's side project podcast, which tackles current events and life's big questions from the perspective of secular hosts Chad and Amanda at TheSecularPerspective.com. Bumper music for this podcast comes courtesy of As Good As It Gets, which can be found at facebook.com slash asgoodasitgetsband. You can also find As Good As It Gets music on Spotify, Google Play, and iTunes. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. Kitty! Kitty!